Excelsis Deo. One more time. Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Y'all did a great job. So glad the Christmas carol theme is done now, right? All right, so um, well, what I want to focus on in that particular song is that statement, Gloria in excelsis Deo. This is a Latin phrase which means glory to what? To God in the highest, right? Glory to God in the highest. And so that's where we want to focus our attention today. We want to talk about what is the glory of God. What is the Bible referring to when it talks about the glory of God? And then we're going to talk about what difference that makes to your life and to mine. But before we do that, we need to get to our scripture for the day. And that's going to come to us from Luke chapter 2. It's the next couple of verses after what our Advent readers read. That's Luke chapter 2. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. So, the, so Jesus had just been born, and now there's some shepherds out in the field. And uh, let's read uh, what happens here. So Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Here we go. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, he is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. You may be seated. Thank you very much. All right, so we want to kind of walk into these verses together and try to unpack what exactly is it that we're talking about when we talk about the glory of God. So look at verse 8 with me. We'll start there. Verse 8 reads, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch of their flocks at night. Now we know the nearby was nearby Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is situated about six miles southwest of the city of Jerusalem. Between Bethlehem and the city of Jerusalem are what is referred to as the hills of Ramos. This was back in Jesus' day, a green pasture land territory where lambs were allowed to graze that would be sacrificed for the Passover meal. So at certain I'm sorry, for the, for the, for the Passover uh, religious festival. And so that usually takes place around Easter time. And so these shepherds were out there in the fields nearby Bethlehem watching over these Passover lambs. And so um, as they're out there in the fields, they, all of a sudden an angel appears to them and tells them about the baby Jesus that has been born. He's lying in a manger, and they can go see this baby Jesus. And then all of a sudden it says, verse 9, it says, uh, that the glory of the Lord shone around them, that is, around these shepherds. And so they were just, uh, all of a sudden, the sky lights up all around them, and they have this, uh, they, they see the, the, the glory of God is on display. And so that leads, and then the angels go on to sing, glory to God in the highest. And so that leads us to ask, well, what exactly is it that we're talking about? What is the glory of God? Well, the, the word glory comes from a Greek term, doxa, and it also comes from a Hebrew word, kabod. And those two terms can be translated, as we see here in our Bible, glory. They also mean magnificence. They mean splendor. They mean radiance. And so this is what the glory of God is. It is God's magnificence. It is his splendor. It is his radiance. And so what it means here is that the glory of God has come on display. It means that God has come near to human beings. God has become uh, within 
their experience, within their cognition of the, that God is there. And as a result of that, God has come near. His glory has come with him, his radiance, his magnificence. And all of this is on display right there, around, right outside of Bethlehem, around these, um, these uh, shepherds. And uh, so I want to take you to another passage of Scripture to kind of explain, well, what, what is it that is so magnificent about God? Because if the glory of God is the magnificence of God, then what is it about God that is so magnificent, that is so radiant? Go back over in your Bibles to um, Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And this is one of only a half a dozen or so times in all of Scripture where somebody, a biblical writer, gets to poke their head up through the clouds and they see God in heaven. They poke their head up through the clouds, they look into the heavenly temple, and they describe what it is that they see. Ezekiel has a vision like this. Uh, Jeremiah, or Isaiah has a vision like this. The writer of Revelation, John, has a vision like this. There's a number of other occasions where this happens, but not that many. And so this is one of those occasions in Scripture where a biblical writer gets to see God on his throne in heaven and what goes on in the heavenlies. And so he's describing it here for us. So he says, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, so this is around 700s, in the 700s B.C. I'm sorry, I don't have that date for you. But anyhow, it's in the 700s B.C. And so he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah pokes his head up through the clouds just for a quick glimpse. And what he gets to see is he sees the God the Father seated on his throne, and the train of God's robe is flowing out through the temple, and it fills the temple, and he sees God seated there high and lifted up. Verse 2, he says, Above him, that is above God, were seraphs. Each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. So they've got three pair of wings. With one pair of wings they're covering their feet. With one pair of wings they're covering their face. And with the third pair of wings they're actually in flight. And so these seraphs are there, and God's presence is there, and God's presence is radiant, it's magnificent. Now look at what the seraphs sing perpetually. They never stop singing it. Here we go, verse 3. It says, and they were calling to one another, the seraphs, the, these, these cherubim, these angelic-like creatures, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now it's interesting that they, God has lots of attributes. God had lots of characteristics. God is loving. God is compassionate, God is merciful, God is just, God is all of these things. But the thing that's preeminent amongst them all, the things that is premier amongst all of God's attributes, among all of his characteristics, is not that he is love, love, love. That's not the eternal song of heaven. They don't sing he's faithful, faithful, faithful. They sing, the seraphs sing, and they're compelled to sing this, that God is what? Holy, holy, holy. This is the premier attribute of God, that God is holy. Okay, it's at the core, at the essence of who God is. Now look at the next part of what they sing. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they continue to sing, the whole earth is full of, you would expect them to say here, his holiness. Right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his holiness. No, they say, look, the manifestation of when God shows up is what we call glory. See, the magnificence, the splendor, the radiance of God is God on display. And when God is on display, it is his holiness, friends. It is that central attribute, that central characteristic of who God is, that when it's on display, when God comes near, his glory is revealed. That is his holiness is revealed to us. Now, what is holiness? Holiness is purity. Holiness is absolute uh, uh, moral and moral authority, it is, it is purity of heart, purity of motive, purity in every sense. 
And that's what holiness is. God is pure. Friends, God is very much unlike us. Um, We may be good people. We may do good things, especially this time of year. But at the core, at the central nature of who we are, when we were two years old, I mean, we were, you know, we were a handful. Uh, We are not uh, holy like God is holy. We are not pure like God is pure. And it's that very fact that is the reason why you and I cannot get into heaven without some other person, some other way, being, making us pure, making us holy. Friends, this is why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross to make you and I like pure and holy like God is. We would not be allowed into God's presence if we were not made pure, if we were not made holy. It is the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, friends, and there is no other way for this to happen. It's through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross that your sins can be forgiven. You can't be a good person and expect God to say, hey, you know what, you're holy enough. You're pure enough because you did some good things and they outweighed the bad things that you did in your life. You know, you went out, you helped some people at the homeless shelter. You went out, you, helped, you get, get, brought your, helped your neighbor with their car. You did some recycling. You did all these really wonderful things. And God to say, well, you know, that's, that's good enough. No, no, friends, we have to be made pure. We have to be made holy in order to enter into the presence of a holy God. And the only way that can happen is by taking the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, appropriating it to our life and to our hearts, by accepting Jesus' sacrifice, asking him to forgive us, asking him to wash us clean. It's the blood of Jesus that is the stain stick of heaven, right, that washes away our sins. No, nothing can wash away our sins but the blood of Jesus. And if you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ, if you've never turned to him for the forgiveness of your sins, friends, you may be looking to some other way to get to heaven, but I'm telling you, I'm here to tell you this morning, there is no other way but through the blood of Jesus. Something for you to think about. Okay, so that's what God's glory is. God's glory is his holiness on display, and it is magnificent, it is splendor, it is radiant, it is glory. Okay? Everybody on board with that? All right. Well, that brings us, that's kind of our theological treatment of this subject matter today, and so that means it's time for us to ask that question we ask each week around here, which is, what difference does this make to my life? You say, Gordon, thanks so much for the, uh, for the little uh, lesson there on what glory is, but I mean, I got Christmas presents to buy. I got people coming out to the house. I mean, what does God's glory have to do with, uh, with me getting the ham cooked just right, right? And so let, let's talk about that. Um, see, the issue here is God's glory versus our glory. The issue here is, is God getting 100% of the glory? Is he getting 100% of the credit for the blessings and the good things that happen in our life and around our life and the lives of others? Or are we trying to steal the spotlight from him? This reminds me of King David in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. David makes an offering for the building of this new temple. He wants to build this magnificent facility where God will come and he will, um, he will be present. He will tabernacle or be in the temple with his people. He will be there among them, dwell among them. And so he wants to build this temple. And so David makes a, a big, giant offering. Uh, so that this temple can be constructed. And it's interesting that David doesn't take the funds for the construction of this temple out of the public funds. He actually goes to his personal bank account, and he opens up his personal checkbook, and he writes a check. And the Bible tells us exactly how much David gives in this, this offering. Okay? It says that he gave 7,000 talents of silver. Okay, 7,000 talents of silver going rate. Yeah, I know. I did a little math on this. So the going rate for, for silver today, 7,000 talents of silver, is $238 million. 
He had two out of his personal bank account. He's a pretty wealthy guy, right? $238 million he gave toward the construction of this new temple. Now, hold on, that wasn't all that David did. The Bible says he also gave, in addition to 7,000 talents of silver, he gave 3,000 talents of gold. When you add all that up, it's 3,000 talents of gold going right today, the 7,000 talents of silver, he gave $5.3 billion. I mean, it's going to be a really nice temple, right? That's a pretty opulent place. But that's what David gave out of his personal bank account. And you have to love his attitude here. Listen to what he says, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14. He says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to even give as generously as this? Here's how we're able to do it. Everything comes from you, O Lord. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. David's not standing there going, hey, look at this great gift that I gave. David's saying, all that I have is only because of what the Lord has done. All that I have, the success that I have, the financial success that I'm, that I'm able to do this, is, it's not by my hand. It's because of what God has done, how God has blessed me. None of the credit for his wealth, none of the credit for his victories, none of the credit for his achievements, none of the credit for the blessings in his life, None of that, David says, belongs to me, but rather it all belongs to the Lord. It is his hand that opened and poured these blessings into my life. David wanted to make absolutely sure that all of the glory for everything in his life went to Almighty God. Now, do you see a message here for the church today? I do. We have, um, well, let me kind of first of all back, back up here just a second. Um, what I see happening in the church today, and this is not the liberal church, this is the Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, the true church of God in the world today. I see happening, uh, in my opinion, when it comes to self-glorification and self-promotion and self-exaltation, I don't see an issue that's going on in the church today. I see an epidemic that's happening in the church today. You ever turn on these TV preacher networks, right? And you see these folks, and they're out there, and they're proselytizing themselves. They're putting their name out there. It's their book sales. They're all about them. They're having conferences. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to develop a following. That's what they're trying to do. And I can, to a certain degree, understand, you know, branding and, and understanding how people work and you get people on board and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, this is not about you. This is not about me. This is about the Lord whose hand allowed all of those blessings that we have in our lives to happen. It's not because of my hard work or how smart I am. It's because of what God allowed to happen. And I see an epidemic taking place in the church today where we have pastors who are focused on self-glorification and self-promotion and self-exaltation, an epidemic, if you would. And as followers of Christ, friends, we are to love the Lord Jesus, not the man or the woman in the mirror. As followers of Christ, we should reject self-glory and self-promotion and self-exaltation. We need to stop thinking about our lives in terms of our prestige, in terms of our position and our titles and our power and our notoriety and our reputation even amongst the saints. Instead, we must make God the center of our lives. We must make God's glory the paramount issue of our lives. Amen? Listen, if God decides to exalt someone else over you, if God decides to promote someone else over you and he gets glory for that, how dare we be resentful? 
how dare we be resentful of God getting glory by someone else uh, being elevated? I sincerely believe, friends, that the front rows of heaven will be filled with unfamiliar faces. People that we never knew. People that, wow, I didn't know they did all that. I didn't know that they gave that. I didn't know that they spent their life in that way. I don't think it's going to be filled with a bunch of TV preachers. Things be filled with the faces of people who said, you know what, while I was here on this earth, I didn't make a name for myself. I made a name for the Lord. And I think that's who's going to be at the front row of heaven. Everything about their lives pointing toward the Lord. This is why John the Baptist said, John chapter 3 and verse 30, I read this from the King James Version, he must increase and I must decrease. This is why Paul and Barnabas, upon returning to their home church in Antioch, said, Acts chapter 14 and verse 27, they reported all that Paul and Barnabas had done. No, they reported all that God had done through them and how God, he, had opened the door to the Gentiles. They didn't stand in front of their church and say, wow, we were healing people, we were starting churches, people were coming to the Lord, we were doing all these great things. No, they went to their home church and they said, Look at all the Lord has done. We just went where the Lord told us to go. We opened our mouth when he told us to open our mouth. And look at how the Lord showed out. We showed up. He showed out. Or how about Christian leaders like Jim Elliott, the missionary who died in 1956 trying to reach the Aukin Indians in South um, America. He said, Jim Elliott said, and I quote, We are just a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt the great somebody. And I love the words of Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist. He was commenting on Moses, and he said these words. You can follow along with me. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking that he was somebody. Spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court. Remember, Moses lived 120 years old. Spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking that he was somebody. He spent 40 years in the desert realizing that he was a nobody. And then he spent the last 40 years of his life showing what God can do with a somebody who realizes he's a nobody, end of quote. I think that was pretty good. I thought that was pretty good. Okay, well, I have a challenge for us, all right? And here's what I want to challenge us to do. That as true followers of Jesus Christ, I want to challenge us to follow the example of Paul and Barnabas, to follow the example of David, to follow the example of Jim Elliott and Dwight L. Moody and many others, And that is to join the angels singing, glory to God in the highest. Friends, put the credit where the credit is due. And to not just mean that in our heart and know that in our mind, but to literally open our mouth and to say it. Because see, here's what happens. People know you. They know your life, your values, your priorities. They see stability in your home. They know how you're more organized in your finances. They know how you're a moral person who loves the Lord and wants to serve him. And they watch that and they say, you know what? That guy, that gal, they're pretty nice people. They've got some things working working out for them. And we think to ourselves when they say something like that to us, we think, boy, Lord, I am so blessed by you. Lord, I'm so grateful to you. We think that in our mind. But unless we say it with our mouth to those individuals, you know what? Let me stop you right there. The reason why I am blessed, the reason why I have stability in my heart and in my home is because of what the Lord has done. Friends, unless we 
speak it with our mouth. Oftentimes, we end up getting the credit where the Lord should. As followers of Christ, it's critical that we give him the glory outwardly with our mouths. We don't have to be obnoxious about it. We don't have to be sappy about it. However, we can do this respectfully and with class. But everywhere we go, with everyone we meet, they should know that the reason why the good things that are going on in our life are there is the very same expectation the Apostle Paul gave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 10, he said, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Not because of what I've done, but because of what God has done for me. You say, Gordon, all this is really wonderful. I really appreciate you talking about this this morning. Sounds real ethereal. A lot of great epithets you got up here. A lot of great thoughts you got up here for us. But I mean, here's my problem. I know when I look inside of my heart, it's not so pretty. And I see somebody else getting promoted. I see someone else, the Lord blessing their life. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, sometimes I'm, I get upset about that. Sometimes my sinful nature, my flesh creeps in, and I'm not too happy about that. And it's not real pretty, so what do I do about it? I mean, I understand how, what, how I'm supposed to think, but how do I actually do that? Well, like with any other ugly problem that we have, we have to, number one, admit that we have this problem. That is, we have to come to God on our knees and say, Lord Jesus, I've seen what's in my heart, and it's not pretty. And this stuff, as much as I hate it, it does live on the inside of me. I know, Lord, that it doesn't honor you. But, Lord, I I just need to come before you and recognize that it's there. So that's step one. Number two, second thing is, to ask God to change our heart. To ask God to change our heart. Psalm chapter 51 and verse 10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. You notice that David didn't look in the mirror when he's saying that. He didn't say, David, create in yourself a pure heart. No, he turned to the Lord. And the reason why he turned to the Lord to create in him a new heart, a new person on the inside is because you can change your behavior, right? You can stop doing certain things and start doing other things and just kind of, every time one of those things comes up, you know, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that, right? You can do that. You can change your behavior. However, the inside stuff, changing the inside stuff, changing who you are intrinsically, the things that motivate you, the things that drive you, the things that are, are your impulses, right? That stuff, friends, you can't change that. But there is one who can. And David said, create in me a pure heart, O God. He turned to the Lord because he knew that the Lord could change the inside stuff. He could form him, shape him into a new person. My hope is, as we pray this prayer, as you've been praying this prayer in your Christian walk, as you continue to, that the person you are today won't be the same person that you are a year from now or three years from now, or five years from now, as the Lord takes that inside stuff that's not so pretty, and he changes you from the inside out. So we need to be a people who come to the Lord saying, Lord, I I see what's in my heart, and I want it to be different. And so, Lord, I recognize that I got a problem on the inside, and it's a problem that only you can change. And then we ask the Lord to do this. And make that attitude not just something that we say with our in our mind, in our heart, but that we're also sharing that with other people, that something that lives at the core of who I am, that, uh, Lord, that he would root that 
out of us. And he'll begin doing that, friends, this Christmas season, if you will ask him, so that you can sing with the angels glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the possibility of real heart change. We thank you, Lord, that as we turn to you and the power of your Holy Spirit moving through our life, Lord, that we don't have to be the same person tomorrow, next year, that we are right now. And so, Lord, we just want to admit that there's some not-so-pretty stuff lurking below the surface, and we do our very best to tamp it down, to cover it over, to not allow that out, but Lord, it's there. Lord, some of us husbands need more patience. Some of our spouses, Lord, need more understanding. God, we can't get there by just gutting it out. We need you to do an inside work. Lord, we just we turn to you. You are the ultimate change agent. And so, Lord, in this Christmas season, we ask that you would begin that change at the core level of who we are. We turn our attention now, Lord Jesus, to this table, these elements representing your broken body and your shed blood. Lord, we're reminded that all of this is only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. Once again, Lord, you are the one doing the work. In these moments of quiet this morning, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you'd speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would stir within us. Perhaps, Lord, put your finger on one of those areas of our life that needs your touch, that needs an inside change. And begin that good work in us, we pray. In Christ's name.